0: Thanks for that wonderful introduction, Lorraine. I hope i knew that the <laughs> My name is Freddie. I'm a proud member of the Worldwide Fellowship of uh anon First off, I want to thank Luann for asking me to uh share my story this morning with you guys. For me it is indeed an honor and a privilege to be here. Um, I've been the past uh chairperson for the Al Anon uh portion of this roundup. I know what a job it is. I know it takes a lot of work, a lot of patience, a lot of dedication. And I want to give another hand for Luann for doing such a wonderful job this weekend and getting the speakers and everything else for the Al-Anon Thank Thanks, Luann. I appreciate it. I'm supposed to stand here this morning and tell you guys what it was like before Al-Anon, how al changed my life, and what my life is like today. Before I begin I'd like to share a page with you that I often read when I um when I'm asked to share. Just as a reminder to me. It's on page one hundred thirty one out of the Curse to Change and it goes like this. It says, I'm so grateful to belong to a fellowship where everyone speaks for himself or herself. Alanon has no spokesperson, no authority who tells what our experiences have been. I am the only one who can tell my story. I find it very comforting to be a part of a group of people who share some of my problems and feelings. Although we have much in common, each Al-Anon member has unique wisdom to offer. Through the things of experience, strength, and hope, we learn specific ways in which fellow members have applied the Al-Anon program to their situation. Taking what we like and leaving the rest. Each of us is free to benefit from this individual approach to our common purpose, recovery from the effects of alcoholism. So when I share in a meeting, I try to avoid phrases such as, this is a problem for us, or we tend to do that. Instead, I look at sharing as an opportunity to see myself more clearly. Today's reminder, Today, when I speak for myself, securing the fact that I am supported by a fellowship of men and women who understand as perhaps few others can. Our recovery depends on our ability to tell our own story, not that of the alcoholic or another Al-Anon or a And as I said before, that's a reminder for me that When I share my my story, I need to keep the focus on myself. There is a little bit of background information that that I need to give you guys, though. Um, I come from a family of uh, six children. I'm the second oldest in the family. And with that, I felt I had a huge responsibility. I come from a home where there was no heavy drinking, there was no daily drunkenness or anything like that. The place that I came from, it wasn't quite healthy. There was a lot of uh, behavior in that household that was not healthy and not safe. My mother, by the time I was nine years old, my mother married a a man. And um, I know today, and my two sisters know that the man that married my mother married her because she had three, three girls in the house. Um, I'll let you fill in the blanks on that. I won't go into any details with that uh, portion of my life, but um, it was something that happened, and it just wasn't a healthy environment to be in. This man was also physically abusive to my mother, and I watched her go through a lot of um, a lot of pain. I watched her get uh, hit, and um, I also watched her. Except unacceptable behavior, and I couldn't understand why. I couldn't understand what it was about her that made that okay for somebody to treat her like that. Even as young as I was, I knew it wasn't right. So that's the kind of place I came from. When I was 16 years old, uh, this man one more time tried to uh, molest me. And um, I threatened him with uh, police action if he ever did it again. And I managed to get away that time. By this time, I was uh, my boyfriend was like uh, 17 years old, a year older than me, and I was able to tell him what was happening in the house. And uh, he became my protector. And he promised me from that day on that he would take care of me and wouldn't let anything happen to me. And, you know, for over 20 years, we got married when I was 19, and he was uh, 20. I tried to hold him to that promise. And, um, you know, he didn't know what I needed. He didn't know what to do to help me be the person that I needed to be. And he did the best he could with what he had. And um, I remember when he made that promise to me, I'm going, okay, I don't have anything else to worry about in my life. He says he would take care of me, and he will. And that's how I went through my life for many, many years. I can remember growing up in that family and feeling somewhat disconnected and out of place, like I didn't belong there, like I was the oddball. And I had that feeling for most of my life in that family. Even with friends, I tried to associate myself growing up with the people that I thought were the cutest, the smartest, the brightest, so some of that would rub off on me and I would fit in. And it just never worked. It just never worked for me. The feelings I felt growing up were disconnection, a sense of not belonging, a sense of not being a part of this group of people that shared the same spaces with me. And I couldn't figure out why, but I always felt different. And I've heard a lot of speakers say the same things. I've heard a lot of AA speakers and Illinois speakers say the same thing, you know, so... It's not an uncommon thing to feel that way. I know that today. So i listening to so many other people share about it. But when I was feeling that way, I felt very different and very unique. And I felt like it wasn't a common thing, like I was the only one filled with those feelings. So you see, way long, long before alcoholism reared its ugly head in my life, I had feelings of of being less than, not being good enough, not being pretty enough, not being smart enough. And all these things that went along with the way I reacted and acted towards other people. Like I just didn't fit in. I just didn't belong. And I kept trying to do all kinds of things to make myself feel another way. And it just never happened. It never happened. For some unforeseen reason, I was one of those people that um, took that first drink and felt okay. (laughs) And, And fit in after that. It just doesn't have that kind of personality for that to happen to me. So um, drinking was never a problem in my life. But out of the six uh, siblings, uh, there's uh, three, and they all happen to be the boys in the family, the fellows in the family that had serious substance abuse problems. And I have a sister that's kind of dabbled in and out of things, you know, kind of recreational things, she calls it. But um I've been kind of watching her over the years too as she's trying to turn her life around. But um, there's me and my oldest sister who's 11 months older than I that just never, never were, became attracted or abused or misused any kind of uh, alcohol or, or drugs or other mind-altering uh, chemicals. You know, on to into that first marriage of mine, um We did the basic things that most people do. Got married real young and set out trying to have a life, trying to make the life the best we could. You know, when I did, when I got married, I was already pregnant. So, (laughs) you know, our first son came along about six months into the marriage, and um, really, neither one of us were equipped to um, be a couple and do what we needed to do to make life different for us. But we tried to do the best we could. And it, it was a lot of hard times. We had our ups and downs. Uh, we had a lot of breakups and making up because uh, he just didn't want to work. He didn't want to hold down a job. And uh, he was the type of personality, if somebody said something to him that he didn't like, he would get pissed off and walk off the job. And it went on that way for years. Um finally we decided to move to Los Angeles, California and things really turned around for us there and uh, we moved there in 1969 and a few months, a couple of years later I had my second uh, child that was a daughter and uh, we just went on about the business of living and trying to do the best we could with what we had That marriage lasted for over 20 years, but during the course of that marriage and raising those children, somewhere in there, I lost myself. I took on the role of becoming somebody's wife, somebody's mother, somebody's employee, somebody's neighbor, best friend, and all those other things, but I lost myself. I got into the role of people-pleasing and doing for others one more time, wanting to make everybody like me, wanting to fit in, wanting to do the best I can. And um, I did that for many, many, many years. The way I lived my life was reactionary. The way anybody acted, I just reacted off of what they were going on. That first husband, he made a lot of decisions and I just went along with them, So as not to make waves or lock the boat, And things were pretty good, so I thought, for a lot of years, because I didn't know that things would be any different. As we went on raising the kids and and, um, building a life, we finally got, you know, to a point where we could afford to live in a nice home, a nice neighborhood, and have the two cars and, and the nice furniture and all those things, and we thought life was pretty good. Meanwhile first husband of mine, you know, we used to have parties and have friends over and all that kind of stuff, and um, there was drinking, and there were huge parties a couple of times a year where people would stay on into the next day, drinking and partying and just hanging out, and I didn't see anything wrong with that, I, you know, we even set up little rooms for other people to do other stuff that they did besides drinking, I didn't see anything wrong with that because, um, you know, I, one more time being a nice guy wanting to make people like me and wanting to make things okay for all my friends and make them comfortable for whatever they wanted to do. That was cool with me when they came over to party or whatever. And there I was just running around making sure everybody had what they needed and everything was okay. And a lot of times I didn't even drink, didn't take a drink. But I was having a good time and making sure everybody else had a good time. As the kids started to get older, I looked at that lifestyle and I, I remember saying to my husband, you know, we have to stop um having people over so much and partying so much. We have to stop doing this because the kids are getting older and I think it's a bad influence on them. <laughs> you know, and he says, he agreed with me, he said, well, okay, what do you want to do? I'm going, well, we just have to stop having the parties and then I think we need to move to another neighborhood where, you know, the kids will have a, a better chance of, uh, with schools and, and all that kind of stuff. And that's what we did. The thing is, we moved to that other neighborhood, but he continued to hang out with these friends, and he continued to party, and he continued to um, use drugs and and different mind-altering chemicals. And for a lot of years, I need to tell you, I didn't have a clue. I didn't know what he was doing because I had gotten what I wanted. He had set us up in this nice house, nice neighborhood and everything, and I felt satisfied that I had gotten what I wanted at that point, and he was free to come and go as he pleased and do whatever he wanted to do. I was sitting in a meeting last night, not last night, a couple of nights ago, and um, a lady shared about looking at some some pictures she had taken of her surroundings in our house. And I can remember uh, after um, divorcing, I was going through some pictures uh, to give my kids of, of their father. And I looked at those pictures, and I could see where he was under the influence so many different occasions. I could see it in those pictures. But when I was living with that, day in and day out, I could not see it. I couldn't see it. I was just blind to the fact. I was so much in denial. I couldn't see what was going on right under my nose. I I can't call him an alcoholic because uh, he doesn't identify himself as such, and I don't think I have a right to call anybody that, unless they themselves identify themselves as an alcoholic. But he did abuse um, drugs of different sorts. I can say that. Um, And like so many other members in my family, some of those some of them found recovery. And some of them identified themselves as alcoholics. So I can do that. But in my family, there's a lot of drunks, a lot of people that used, abused, and misuse alcohol, and um, and catch drunk on a regular basis. I don't know if they're alcoholics or not, and it's not my place to say that. You know, when I um as the kids got older, I began to notice their behavior was changing. My son, for example, was um, exhibiting behavior that led me to believe that he was doing something he shouldn't be doing. But by this time, I was the classic queen of denial. So when he told me that he was at the beach and he got salt water in his eyes, I believed it. When he told me he was playing uh, basketball, took the shower after, and got soap in his eyes, I believed it. You know the red eyes, and and um, and when he was sleeping, he was tired. You know from playing basketball or whatever. I believed everything he said because I didn't want to face the facts of what I was seeing right in front of my eyes because I didn't know how to deal with it. I wasn't equipped to handle the truth. Before Alanon, I was I didn't have the courage. I didn't have the courage or the guts to stand up for myself and say what I was seeing and to call people on what I was seeing them doing. So I went on with that through for a lot of years, watching my son slowly kill himself with alcohol. My son drank through most of his teenage years. By the time he graduated from high school, he was a full-blown alcoholic. When he was uh, 18, just about three or four days after his 18th birthday, he got a DUI coming from a football game. They recommended that he go to AA meetings. I remember when he went to his first AA meeting and um, I took him to the place where he needed to go and dropped him off and he got a ride home that evening. He came home and he had, had the AAB book with him. And at that time I used to read a lot. I still love to read books. And he brought this book home. He said, here mom, here's a book that you can read. I'm sure you'll, you'll enjoy it. <laughs> And he gave me the the AA Big Book for the first time. And I remember getting that book, and I remember reading that book from cover to cover. And there was a lot of information in there, and there was a lot of things that I could identify with, and a lot of things in that book that I could relate to. And I remember reading that book. And with my son, he just did the number of meetings he needed to do to clear that court card that they gave him to do at that time. And then it was business as usual. He was off and running. And one thing he was trying to do was get into the Marines and he took the test the first time, and he didn't pass, and he tried again, and then he finally got accepted into the Marine Corps, and when he did that, I thought, okay, that's all I need. He'll go away. He'll straighten up. Everything will be fine, and I can remember when they picked him up that to take him to a boot camp, I slept for the first time. I slept really good that night for the first time in many, many years without worrying about where he was, what he was doing, if he would come home safe, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And this is something that he wanted really, really bad, to be a Marine. Well, after basic training and getting stationed at, uh, I think he was stationed at Camp Lejeune. About a year and a half into the military and his, his career, his disease progressed. He shared a lot with me about what went on uh, during his drinking time in the the Marines, after he got out, after he got into sobriety, after he became a a sober member of Alcoholics Anonymous. He shared a lot with me, a lot I didn't know about. But after about a year and a half after him being in the Marine Corps, and this is how the letter was stated, for the good of the Marine Corps, we will ask you to leave this man's service. His behavior became so bizarre and so out of control and some of the things that he was doing because he was drinking on a regular basis that the Marine Corps asked him to leave. They couldn't even deal with his behavior. Can you imagine? You know, and I was devastated. I still didn't know what to do about that. I still didn't know what to do for my son. But one thing I could do, I I looked in his eyes. I used to look in his eyes and they looked like he was, he looked like he was dying. Looked like he was dying of slow death day after day. And I felt so helpless and so hopeless. And, and there was nothing I could do for this person I loved to get him to do something different. It got to the point when he came home, I would say, okay, I'll buy you a six pack of beer. Drink only at home. That didn't work. And then I stopped buying. I said, like, no drinking, no nothing in the house at all, period. Nothing worked. I didn't realize that he was in the throes of his addiction. I didn't realize what the disease of alcohol, the alcoholism was doing to him. All I could do was look at him and see those eyes, and every day they were becoming more and more sad. And every day I could see he was getting, he was becoming more and more in pain. And he was dying, and there was nothing I could do to save him. And actually, he did end up in a car accident. He was driving under the influence, and he had another uh, a friend of his in the car and uh, fell asleep behind the wheel, took out a concrete and steel light post in um Florence, California. Luckily some people were passing by, they had a fire extinguisher and they put the uh the fire out and dragged him out of the car because he was unconscious and the other passenger got thrown from the car. And that's what saved him police came and knocked on our door. It was about 2 o'clock in the morning. I don't know why all these things always happen after midnight. About 2 o'clock in the morning, you know, and we thought he had come home and gone to bed. He wasn't even in the house. Didn't even realize he had taken his father's car. And we went down to the uh, the hospital where they had him. By the time we got there, now he's laying on a stretcher. His face is just mangled with the cuts. He had cut his face, his eyes, broken shoulder, collarbone, other uh, injuries. And due to the fact that he was driving under the influence, they had him handcuffed to the bed. They had already arrested him before he was even taken care of, before they had even cleaned up the blood or whatever. He's laying there with handcuffs on him at the bed and, and being arrested for driving under the influence. For me, that was a rude awakening at once. Something has to be done. We've got to do something to save him. And I looked at him, and and I remember saying these words that God kept you here for a reason. I don't know what that reason is, but maybe after this incident, you can find out what it is and do something about your life. And I kind of remember saying that, I don't know what to do for you, but I'm not going to give up on you. After he got out of the hospital, he had to do some jail time. And he did several months in jail for these, the offenses that they charged against him. Um, I can't remember everything. But, this was in November, October, November of 19, 1985, I think it was. 1985. Over through the holidays, he was, he was in jail for Thanksgiving, Christmas, New Year's, and I remember he got out around the first or second week of January of 1986. And part of his parole included attending X number of AA meetings. And I remember getting on the telephone and trying to find a place for him to go. And I found it so crazy, the lady thought that I was the one with the drinking problem. And I'm going, no, it's not for me, it's for my son, I need to find an AA meeting for him. And she goes, well, you can take him to this place here. And by the way, there's an al meeting there also. I think you need to check it out. So in January of 1986, I came into al And that was my introduction to al I don't know the exact date, but I do know it was in January. And I remember the first meeting. I remember sitting in that room and listening to people talk and the tears just started to flow. And I can remember for many, many years prior to that, I wouldn't let anyone see me cry. I wouldn't show to anybody that they were hurting my feelings, that my feelings were hurt, or that I was upset about anything. But when I sat in that first meeting, I cried. I think it was just a sense of relief from hearing people share their stories and knowing that I wasn't alone anymore. In the meetings I went into Alamon in, in in Southern California, a piece of pamphlets that they used to read every meeting was uh, the pamphlet. One of them was Understanding Ourselves. And I remember hearing the words in that pamphlet, and I remember relating and being able to identify with all of that stuff that was read out of that. You know, in Understanding Ourselves, they talked about the obsession, the anxiety, the anger, the denial, and the feelings of guilt. And I could relate to all of that because I had all of those feelings. I was obsessed with trying to figure out a way to get this kid to be something other than what he was. I was full of anxiety all the time. I was angry. I was very, very steep into denial. Denial was a big part of my life. If it was something I couldn't deal with then I closed my eyes, turned my back, covered my ears and pretended it wasn't happening and prayed that it would go away. And a lot of times it didn't. Dealing with feelings of guilt, that was really hard for me. Because as the mother of a a son that had problems, I kept thinking it was my duty, it was my job to do something to make this kid be something other than what he was. What kind of mother was I that I couldn't stop this kid from drinking? What kind of parent was I? I thought his behavior was a reflection on my parenting. So I had a lot of guilt and shame behind that. Some of the other things I heard when I came into Al-Anon was, keep coming back. I heard the serenity prayer spoken at each meeting. I could relate to that. Another thing I heard was the three C's. I didn't cause it, I can't control it, and I can't cure it. That gave me some relief and gave me some freedom also. One of the other things I heard over and over was God has no grandchildren. And what that meant to me was, just as I know I had a higher power looking out for me, that my son had one also, and I wasn't it. And I had to let him go. I had to let him be exactly what he needed to be. I also heard things like work in the program. I really didn't understand what that meant. And at that time, it wasn't important to me because I was so new. I heard get a sponsor, work the steps. also heard things like apply the traditions to your life. Use the slogans on a daily basis. Focus on yourself when I came into the rooms of Al-Anon in uh, in Hawthorne, California at the Birch Street Club those women there and there were some men too but mostly women, it was like it was like they opened a warm blanket, a big old blanket and said, come on Freddie, we'll take you into this blanket and we'll help you get through whatever it is you need to get through and that warm blanket of recovery really saved my sanity When I listened to other people share their experience and strength, it gave me hope.
1: It let me know that I didn't have to
0: go through what I was going through alone, those feelings. It let me know that there were other people experiencing and had experienced the same things I had, and they got through it. It let me know that I could be free from despair, that I didn't have to live in the problems all the time, that I didn't have to live in the madness, that I didn't have to live in the indecisiveness of how to do my life and how to help others. When I came into Al-Anon, I was told that there were guidelines I could use to have a better way of life. I was told there were principles. They talked about the steps. They offered me something called the 12 steps to recovery. They also talked about the traditions a lot. And I'm so grateful I came into a place where I did where there were some people there with long-time recovery in Avalon. And I wanted what they had after a while. Because for the longest time, I believed that I didn't belong there. I just came to give my son a ride. And I had to wait in that other room because uh, I needed to take him there and take him back home after the meeting. But as I sat through meeting after meeting after meeting, I began to hear. And a lot of the things I heard really helped me. My ears began to hear more, and my eyes began to open. And I kept hearing, focus on yourself. I kept hearing things like, get a life. When I did decide to work this program, I started talking to people. I opened up more. Because you see, so much in my life, there were all those secrets that I had to keep. There were things I couldn't tell anybody. I couldn't tell you what was going on in my house when I was growing up, because I was too ashamed and embarrassed of that. I couldn't tell you that the marriage that looked so perfect from the outside, uh, the husband was a womanizer for many years, and that I put up with it because I didn't know how to do anything else. I was afraid. I was so sweetened to fear, afraid to stay, afraid to go, afraid what might happen if I left. I was just so afraid for so many years to live my own life. I'm so grateful that I found you guys because you gave me a life back. And that life started to take shape when I got serious about my own recovery, when I took the focus off of other people and put it on myself and started working the steps. And I can remember one night I had made friends with this uh, lady in the program, and she, she later became my first sponsor. She was just about this high, a Mexican lady. And for some reason, every time I went to a meeting, that lady shared, whatever she said just really got on my nerves. I didn't like (laughs) her, didn't like anything about her, didn't like the way she dressed, I didn't like the way she spoke, I didn't like the way she looked, I just didn't like anything about her, and when she shared it was over, not again. But what Eva was doing, (laughs) what she was doing, she was telling my truth. When she opened her mouth and shared her story, it was so much about what was going on and what had gone on in my life. And the truth that she was hearing about me, I was not yet ready to hear. So when she spoke during those early days of, of my recovery, she really got on my nerves. She buzzed me a lot. And we we ended up being friends somehow or another. I'm still not quite sure how that happened. And I remember one night we were writing for a meeting, and I was... Uh, griping about something that was going on in the house. And I remember I just turned to her one night, and I went, I really, really need help. I'm desperate. Will you be my sponsor? And I go, where did that come from? I didn't want her to be my sponsor of all people. But she was the right person for me. Because I remember coming into al and I wanted somebody just like me to help me. That wouldn't have gotten me anything. Because Eva came into my life, and, and she was a godsend. She was a gift from God because she understood me and she knew more about me than I knew about myself. And I'm so grateful that I was put in a place and that she was put in my life to help me along my path to recovery. We started working the steps, you know, those first three steps. First I came, and then I came to, and then I came to believe. You know, I just showed up for me, meeting after meeting for a long time. It was well into a year before I asked you to be my sponsor. And she just helped me through it. She helped me come to believe in the program of Al-Anon. She helped me to know that I could have a better life. As we did the steps, there were so many things that I balked about doing, so many things I didn't want to do, but I knew I had to do it in order to get better. When it came time for me to do my fourth step, the inventory, I knew I had to look at my own behavior. I could no, no longer look at the people in my life that I thought had caused me all the pain and aggravation and frustration. I had to look at my part in it, and I had to own that. And that was difficult for me to do. Because for so many years, I didn't want to admit to anything, especially if it was something that made me not look good. Because I always wanted to look good, sound good, and, and be out there, put on this facade. This is really what's happening. But it really wasn't. So to admit that I had done harm to others, especially those that I love, that was really difficult for me to do. But I was able to do that with the help of, of a kind, loving sponsor and with the help of this fellowship and working the staff and being able to trust. The program gave me trust. And it gave me courage to do the things I needed to do to have a different life. When I came on to step five, I had to admit to God, to myself, and to another human being, the exact nature of my wrongs. That was difficult. Because even when I was doing that fourth step and writing all those terrible things down that I had done, in the name of love and because I cared, there were some things in that inventory that I swore I wouldn't share with anybody. I would just block those sections out when it came time to share. But it didn't happen. When I got to do that that fifth step with Eva, I couldn't leave anything out. I couldn't omit anything. I had to be thoroughly honest with her. I had to share everything, the good, the bad, and the ugly. And I remember after doing that, she put arms around me and she loved me anyway. She kept loving me no matter what. She didn't sit in judgment of me. She didn't say it was such a terrible thing for me to do some of the things that I had done. Because I had made decisions throughout my life that really affected other people. There were life-changing decisions regarding my kids, regarding my my husband, and myself. I had done harm to to myself and others. When it came to doing step six and seven and eight, it talked about defects of character. And it talked about humbly asking God to remove those defects of character and making a list of those persons I had harmed. One thing I was told to do was to put my name on the top of that list for the people I had harmed because I had allowed myself to accept so much unacceptable behavior. And I had harmed myself by being a doormat, by being into denial, by not standing up for myself, by not having the courage to do what I thought was right for me. When it came to making amends, I can remember when my son was doing his steps right about the same time I was. And uh, he came to me and wanted to make amends to me. And I remember we both sat there and cried in each other's arms because while he was making amends to me, I was making amends to him also. Because, you see, I was there every day. I was a part of my kids' lives, so I thought, The body was there, and I did all the things that I needed to do as a mother. I cooked, I cleaned, I made sure they had a nice house to live in, clothes and everything, transportation and all that. The body was there, but my mind and my spirit and my soul was somewhere else. So I wasn't there emotionally for those kids. And for that, I had a lot of regret, and I had a lot of shame behind that. Today what I try to do is make living a man. I can't go back and I can't change and I can't be a parent that I wanted to be back then. But what I can do today is love my kids in a different way and also my grandchildren. I get a second chance to do that parenting thing. I get a second chance to be right in the moment, right here and right now for those that are in my life that I love a lot. Step 10 tells me that I must... Uh, Continue to take a personal inventory, and I must do that on a daily basis. I have to check myself. At the end of the day, I have to see if I have done anything or said anything to harm anyone. And I need to continue to do that. Step 11 helps me to keep a conscious contact with the God of my understanding through prayer and meditation. That that has become a lot easier for me today. I wake up in the morning with a prayer in my heart when my eyes open, the first word out of my mouth is, Thank you, God, for this day. I'm real grateful, and I'm excited about life today. My life is so different thanks to the help of this program and working these steps and applying the traditions to my life. It gets down to step 12, and it it says, Having had a spiritual awakening as a result of these steps. We tried to carry this message to others and practice these principles in all our affairs. When I read that one, what I see in in step 12 is a promise. It's a promise to me that if I had done everything that preceded these number 12, that my life would be different. And I have seen that promise fulfilled, but I've seen it only fulfilled only because I've done the work. And the work came before the fulfillment of the promise took a lot of work, a lot of time, a lot of dedication on my part and those that helped me to get to that point. Elnon has given me so much. You know, I can stand up here and I can talk about it for hours, but the words I don't think will ever express what I truly, truly feel about this program. The program has given me a life. Today I do work with others. I sponsor other people but I don't sponsor effectively unless I'm being sponsored myself on a continuous basis. And today I have a loving sponsor in my life. She knows everything about me and she loves me anyway. She accepts me for exactly who I am. We laugh together, we cry together, we share things that's going on in our lives on a regular basis. And she's a wonderful part of my life today. She's an important part of my life service work has helped me a lot also I've done a lot of service work, you name it, from carrying the book bag to opening a, a door for meetings meeting to setting up chairs, getting there early, staying late, reaching out my hand and giving my phone number to a newcomer taking phone calls secretary in a meeting I've been a group representative for a couple of meetings all the way up to district representative and um, I have taken great pleasure, and it's been an honor and a privilege for me to serve this fellowship. Because in some small way, I'm giving back something that was so freely given to me. I use the literature on a regular basis. Every day, I open my books of recovery in Al-Anon. When I go to meetings, and those of you that go to meetings with me, you know I walk in with my books. I carry my books with me. I feel they're a very important part of the fellowship. They are an important part of my recovery. Because I can turn to any page, whatever whatever the topic is, I can open one of those books and find a page that can relate to that. And that's where I get my strength. And that's where I get my courage to go on, and that's where I get my encouragement from the pages that have been written for for me and Al-Anon. Somebody came before me and knew exactly what I needed and put it down on black and white in in a lot of these pages. And it helps me on a daily basis to get through things that I need to get through. Today my life is good, you know? Today I choose to overcome problems with prayer. Today I choose to turn fear into faith. Today I choose to replace worry with prayer. If I'm worrying, I can't pray. And if I'm praying, I can't worry. One always cancels the other out for me. So I make a decision what I want to do. And the problems seem to go away when I turn them over. Al-Anon has taught me that I have the tools today to deal with any situations that come into my life. I try to apply the traditions to the best of my ability on a daily basis. This program has taught me that I cannot be selective in how and where and when I choose to use the tools of Al-Anon. I have to use the tools of this program in all areas of my life, on a daily basis. Otherwise, I'm lost. I remember when they were coming out with a book that called it was called When I Got Busy, I Got Better, and that's what really prompted me into doing a lot of my service work. And after I had so much fun from being involved in service, being an team sponsor, that has given me one of the greatest joys I can think of in life. You know, um this program has been a lifeline for me and that's not to say my life has been wonderful it's not to say my life is a bed of roses today it's not over the past year there's been a lot of things going on with me today but i've managed to overcome them i'm wearing these dark glasses today because um, i've been having some difficulty with my eyes and some uh, surgery some procedures over the past year And I woke up in the middle of the night in excruciating pain. And I'm very, very sensitive to to light of any kind today. And there's some fear behind that. You know, I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know how my eyesight will be in the future. And uh, a lot of times I become afraid. But the prayer helps to ease that, that fear. And I've done everything that I thought I could. I made an educated decision to have this procedures done, and I thought I had all the information I needed to make the right decision and the right choices. I don't have any regrets about that. The only thing that that I get fearful about is uh, the recovery and the different complications I've been experiencing over the past uh, nine months, dealing with the, the eyes, you know. There's a fear that I may not be able to see as well as I would like to you know, later on down the road. But as I said, I don't have any control over that. I know God is in charge of my life today. I know I have wonderful people in my life that love me and support me no matter what is happening with me. I was involved in an automobile accident. I was rear-ended on August the 29th, just a few months ago. And that changed my life tremendously. So I've worked for about a month, and I'm I'm still being treated for that injury. But you know what? I don't let it bother me. I don't let it keep me down. It bothered me. It has bothered me from time to time. Because when you're in pain, it's hard to ignore. (laughs) It's just hard to ignore. When it's there, it's there. And um, I know this too shall pass. I know my life will get better. And I know all this will be behind me soon. But one of the things I want to say about that um, is I have people in my life today that care about me. They look out for me. They call me on a regular basis. I have rides to meeting after dark. And I'm grateful for those things. I'm grateful for the people in the fellowship that give me what I need when I need it. I'm grateful for the people in my life that love me exactly the way I am. without trying to make me any difference. I'm grateful that I can be exactly what else to fit into somebody else's mood. When I was going through all the things with the accident and the doctors and the lawyers and the employees, I practiced a lot of prayer. I did a lot of praying for the people that I thought were doing me harm at that point. And I got through it. And things were beginning to work out and things are beginning to fall in place. And even though I know that's a small stumbling block in my life, I know I cannot let it become something that I can't conquer, something that I can't come around, deal with. And I'm doing that on a regular basis. You know, I don't know what else I can do. But when I woke up this morning and I was in so much pain, I thought about a page that I, I love in this fellowship, and it's, it's one of the pages in the Wine. And it talks about this uh, lady that got a knock on her door during one of the wars. And she went to the door in her room, and she knew it was strange for him to be there, so she knew something had happened. And uh, he gave her bad news. Her husband had been killed in the war, and she invited him in and sat down and offered him tea. And she went on to share with him that if he hadn't come to her door, what would she have been doing that day? She said she would have been having tea about this time, and she went on with her life and did what she knew. Because it's what she would have been doing if that tragedy hadn't occurred. And that's one of my favorite pages in al And that got me through a lot. When things were really, really bad in my life, it was gone, what would I be doing if this wasn't happening? And I would remember that page. And and immediately after I woke up and I started getting ready, I remembered that page today. I would be getting ready. I'd be done, And I'd do my talk. So I'm really grateful that God gave me the strength and the and the power to carry through it what I needed to do today. And just say how it is in my life today. And just talk about my own recovery and how Al Anon and the fellowship has aided me in my recovery. And to show you that there is life, hope, happiness, fun because we do have good times in Al Anon. There is good times in recovery. There's a lot of laughter. There's a lot of fellowship. Lots of joy. There's also peace and serenity in my Today I do live in sobriety, that son I spoke of. He's been clean and sober for over 30 years. Before I close, I just want to, I'm so grateful that you guys are here for me on a daily basis. Because when things were as good as they could possibly be in my life, Avalon has always been there. And when things were as bad as I thought they would ever get. And I'm so glad that I had the courage coming through all of the crisis to get through whatever I needed to get through. I'd like to read this with you for you. It says, when anyone anywhere reaches out for help, let the hand of Alanon and Alatine always be there, and please let it begin with me.